Yeah, so you can start by introducing yourself. So hello, my name is Tominisha John. I am a professor, so technically I'm Dr. John. Um, and I'm an assistant professor at Clark Atlanta University in the political science department. And more broadly or generally, I study issues of economic imperialism in the Caribbean, uh, Canadian banking, multinational and transnational corporations. And I'm currently working on an article entitled um, Canada and Globalized Financial Militarization. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, thanks so much. And um, I guess just to begin, we like can talk a little bit about Guyana and the the recent uh, Walter Rodney symposium that you participated in, got a chance to be uh, discussing and um, talking about the 50 year anniversary of how Europe underdeveloped Africa. So I'm curious just to kind of pick up with Walter Rodney as a critical uh, theoretical and historical figure in Guyana, but also in, in of course the, the Caribbean and the world in general. And in commemorating his legacy, you know, how do you think his legacy still impacts the politics of Guyana? The politics of the Caribbean as well, um, all of his his writings and his theories as well, and his assassination. Mm -hmm. So we had the Walter Rodney Symposium um, a couple of weeks back, towards the end of March, because we were not only commemorating fifty years of how Europe underdeveloped Africa, but we were also commemorating what would have been Walter Rodney's eightieth uh, birthday had he not been assassinated, and. For me, the symposium was really refreshing since I saw that not only people uh, were still engaging with Ro Walter Rodney's work, thought, and also uh, commitment to being a scholar, activist, and actual revolutionary, but also what I saw at the symposium was that this was something that was still being carried on through generations. So how Europe Underdeveloped Africa was one of the most uh, widely read books in whether you were an activist, an academic, or just a regular person on the street in the, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s time period when activisms around internationalist solidarity, uh, you know, liberation movements and talking about colonialism was, you know, captured the hearts and minds of many people. And since then, in the present, I would say that Walter Rodney, just as a lot of other revolutionaries, their works are not as well read or engaged with by people. And that is uh, something that's intentionally done. And so I was a respondent for the second panel uh, during the symposium uh, after the distinguished speaker, Dr. Prashad, uh, gave his talk about the importance of uh, Rodney's work and the importance of Walter Rodney for understanding how we are all connected um, in this system of imperialism. And I think what that brought out was the fact that in how Europe underdeveloped Africa, Walter Rodney spoke about the extraction and you know, theft of peoples and labor from the African continent, but also how it negatively impacted the European person back in Europe, right? And so in my response to Dr. Prashad, I mostly focused on how revolutionaries like Rodney, Fanon, and Nkrumah were confronted with the task of what would be the best way to sort of combat and confront distortions of truth and the denial of history that intentionally proliferate 
throughout the global capitalist system serving to give cover for capitalist and imperial arrogancies and entitlement. And what I focused on were the ways that people are mislearned or misled about things like exploitation, subjugation, and imperialism as natural, that they start to succumb to those beliefs that we cannot possibly think of a better economic, ecological, political, or social world. And I think when we think about someone like Walter Rodney, a lot of his work uh, worked to combat that and actually illuminate the sort of histories that give cover to these uh, divisions that exist within societies that ultimately serve to exploit them. So even though the symposium focused on how Europe underdeveloped Africa, one of my favorite books by Rodney is actually his history of the Guyanese working people. And it's because it is through that history of the Guyanese working people that he's able to do an in-depth historical analysis and investigation into how modern day English Guyana or what is now known as English Guyana came to be. And he speaks about the different processes that were put in place that established different social relationships and hierarchy of segregation and exploitation of people, not just based on skin color, race or ethnic group, but also based on these sort of rural and urban divides, who would be flooded, who wouldn't be flooded, uh, which portions colonizers took care of to facilitate their extraction, et cetera. And I think that a lot of that history gets lost. And currently I feel like I'm rambling since I you know, maybe have lost sight of uh, the main question, but I would say that in my response in the symposium, I wanted to illuminate that these revolutionaries were confronting the fact that history itself was what was being lost or forgotten in favor of a bourgeois retelling of history that makes people complacent in the reasons why our world isn't as good as it should be. And I also pointed out the fact that Walter Rodney rejected reactionary individualistic ideology and capitalism and imperialism on the African continent. And I think it's important to highlight that what he rejected was reactionary individualism. Because today you have this sort of comical characterization of communism or socialism where everyone is just, you know, uh, clones of them, of other people, like this super robotic thing. And that was not what uh, Walter Rodney and these other revolutionaries were advocating for. They weren't advocating for a sort of dogmatic type of Marxism or socialism, but they were saying that based on where you're located and those in-depth histories to your relationships to each other, your environment, the political culture, the social culture, that will sort of inform what a revolutionary would look like for you and your space and context. Yeah, thank you for that. That was a great kind of like introduction to the, the reading of Walter Rodney. And I think the thing that still like a lot of people remember about Walter Rodney and like one of the most important aspects of his kind of legacy is, you know, his scholarship on the one hand, but then also very much intertwined with that, his his activism. And that's kind of, I, I guess, like the next point I'm, I'm interested in, which is his activism uh, in the Working People's Alliance. And to kind of tie this in and, and go further into your particular research, um, you write a lot in your dissertation about the New Jewel movement, about Maurice Bishop in Granada and kind of what they represent as a possible and, and very literal and actual realization of an anti 
uh, anti-neoliberal, you know, political program that came to power, had power for a while, of course, the U.S. intervened and, uh, and took care of that. But with Walter Rodney, too, I think, you know, I was reading um, the more recent uh, book that came out on the Russian Revolution. And uh, I think in Vijay Prashad, in Dr. Uh, Vijay Prashad's foreword, he talks as well about, you know, what could have happened if, if Walter Rodney hadn't been assassinated, had potentially become head of state in Guyana. Um, and would this have looked similar to an anti-neoliberal, anti-structural adjustment, anti-IMF kind of political program? So I think that's where like, I'd like to pick up, which is the possibilities for this, this anti-globalization, uh, anti-capitalist political programs coming to power across the Caribbean. So you, you focused on Grenada and the Nijul movement as, as the example that did occur. Guyana, I guess, like, you know, it took a completely different history because of the assassination of Walter Rodney, but also for plenty of other reasons. So yeah, I'd love to pick up there and, and begin kind of looking into how devastating the history of structural adjustment, you focus on Canada, and I guess that we can you know, discuss that as well as like their role in this IMF structural adjustment program across the Caribbean, but also I guess like in the, the undercurrent of that, which is the, uh, the example that Granada serves as, as a resistance to that and a very real, you know, possibility of, of breaking free of that, that kind of regime that, that was possible and of course was, was overthrown, unfortunately. And how, I guess, Guyana had a similar possibility with someone like Walter Rodney, but of course, you know, there's, there's a intervention by the state by the neocolonial neo state or by the United States to prevent that. Yes, so I'm going to take the question in two parts. First, I'll address Guyana and the Working People's Alliance or the WPA, and then I'll move on to Grenada's uh, structural adjustment. But um, for, you know, post-colonial societies like Guyana, that people talk about being still divided along racial and ethnic lines. One of the most pressing questions for a lot of these Caribbean countries that gain independence is, and when I say independence, I should say flag independence, because we already know, or I would hope people would know that these countries still have a lot of interventions, economic security, um, resource-wise that goes into them from what, you know, I call Anglo settler countries, especially countries in the North America, like the United States and Canada, and of course, EU countries and the UK as well. But once these countries become independent, one of the most issues then becomes, how can we create a sort of political and social unity to confront a lot of these colonial entities that still exist with our societies? And what people uh, like Walter Rodney I think was fundamentally asking when he was organizing in the multiracial WPA was if a shared history of struggle uh, sort of presents this capacity for the self-determination movement to happen that can bring about independence, but it's not enough to foster you know, solidarity in the you know, post-colonial or flag independence setting, then what sort of alternatives can uh, we come up with that would be all inclusive, moral, and create these sort of just societies that we want. And so when we think about Walter Rodney and the WPA, 
fundamentally, the WPA wanted to bridge the racial, ethnic, and political divides that you know existed in Guyana uh, by talking about sort of these class and cultural contradictions. And what I think is important to note, uh, and something that I feel as if it's glossed over a lot of the times when people talk about Walter Rodney's groundings, is the fact that in groundings, he doesn't talk about race as this binary between black and white, but he positions everyone, including Indo-Caribbeans, as belonging to this, uh, you know, black class. And what he meant by black were those that were oppressed by colonial capitalists and other hierarchical systems. And he makes the case that these were your brothers as well. And so in today's, you know, reanalysis by other people, they I think that they sort of downplay that fact that he was not talking about race as a binary, but what he meant by black was fluid for solidarity's sake because solidarity was essential for confronting white supremacy, capitalist, imperialist uh, hegemony in not just the Caribbean, but throughout the former colonial world in general, right? And so, um, when we think about Walter Rodney and his organizing in the WPA, what he did was he wanted to bridge sort of the race and ethnic divides by instilling a sense of responsibility for, towards, and between each and every single Guyanese that was felt by these sort of external pressures and ongoing external threats within Guyana. And a lot of people don't know this, but after Guyana gained its independence, when its independence leaders were, you know, uh, talking about socialism and communism, that really scared the U.S. and Britain. That Britain actually sent foot soldiers, meaning that they actually sent soldiers from Britain to uh, put Guyanese independence that they had already granted it on hold, right? And so a lot of people don't talk about that. So when the WPA is organizing and they're pointing out that we're still a state that's subject to imperialism and we're still a state that's under the dictatorial leadership of a man that the US and UK doesn't feel is you know, serious about this you know, socialism or communism stuff, uh, they're confronting both the external threat as well as the internal threat that is appeasing to or appealing to an external US and UK imperial status quo for the region in its sort of scare of not letting states uh, turn communist or socialist. And so you had a lot of these anti-communist interventions by Britain um, and also those interventions received US backing. And what it essentially did was it legitimized uh, racial forms of governance in Guyana. Um, only so that they could stop or stall what they perceived to be the socialist orientations that were leading national liberation movements in Guyana. And so US and the UK played a direct role in sort of dividing independence movements in Guyana and they divided them along racial lines which were the easiest lines to mobilize people on in a way that was antagonistic given Guyana's history of uh, slavery, given Guyana's history of indentured servitude, which in the working, uh, the Guyanese history of the working people 
Walter Rodney pointed out that when uh, Black people went to the council to speak, they spoke about how indentured servitude itself was akin to slavery. And I think that this is very important to tease out again, which is why I love this book, is because typically when people hear of indentured servants, they think of people belonging to a sort of higher class uh, than other you know, people who are enslaved. But in Guyana, indentured servitude was you know, Indo-Guyanese slavery. These people still had to work on farms, still had to cultivate sugar. And yes, it was to bring down wages of newly freed um, African, uh, Africans from demanding higher wages, but essentially you had Indo-Guyanese working on farms for two cents, right? And that was still uh, something that was exploitative and they were doing the exact same work that slaves were doing. It wasn't like an elevated housework status or any of that. And so uh, when we talk about these histories, we're really talking about a history of people that were exploited for labor purposes for European and uh, US capitalism. And so within the WPA, Walter Rodney's main goal was to one, illuminate that history and two, uh, get rid of these sort of divide and conquer tactics that were used and have always been used by external forces in Guyana, as well as the traditional local sort of forces and people that they propped up to keep these sort of divisions uh, ongoing. And so uh, I think it was two years ago or three years ago, but not that long ago, but the government of Guyana officially recognized that it was the Birmingham government that assassinated Walter Rodney WPA. And it's because his method of organization and mobilization, which was just, again, letting people gain that sort of consciousness or knowledge about the history of their own society, right? Uh, became so detrimental to the government that they uh, assassinated him in a car bombing and worst of all, tried to paint it on his brother and then some of his comrades. But what we do know is that history itself is seen as something dangerous. And Walter Rodney as a historian that was unafraid to tell the history plain to the people is what was dangerous, not just to the Guyanese government, but to the, but to the Jamaican government, which uh, deported him, ousted him, and stopped him from coming into the country and censored a lot of his works. And so in the Caribbean region, I think what Walter Rodney illuminated was how history itself presented a threat to the status quo. And as long as history itself presents a threat to the status quo, Yet at the same time, it is history that is going to capture uh, the minds, interests, and curiosities of people. You have a situation where he and the type of organizing that he was doing, which was just literally talking to the people, can then be reimagined as a threat. Um, and then on the other end, when we think about uh, Grenada and the New Jewel movement, again, it is talking about history that is able to capture the minds and imaginations. Prior to the Grenada Revolution, uh, you had Bishop and a lot of his other comrades in the NJM who were just talking to people, talking to people about history, talking to people about colonialism, talking to people about capitalism. And prior to them even doing the revolution, you had Grenadians asking, when is the revolution going to happen, right? They wanted the revolution to happen. So by the time that the revolution does happen and, um, 
Bishop gets on the radio and he's, you know, just says, hey, we are a black country, we are a small country, X, Y, and Z. The people already know that because they've been engaging with the NJM uh, rank and file and NJM members on just the history of Grenada for years prior to the revolution. And so I think what's important about the Grenadian revolution as well is how they heavily emphasize education. And when I say they heavily emphasize education, the part of education that they heavily um, emphasize was history, right? How, how did our country come to be this country or this island that we now inhabit? And not only how is it, you know, this place that we now inhabit, but how is it that even after our independence, our independence leaders are still beholden to these external sort of foreign interests and all of our political elites are still these local elites that are intent on making sure that poverty is the law of the land in Grenada, right? And so even before its independence, you had the New Jewel Movement who was organizing around Grenada, letting people know, hey, this is our historical situation. This is our present situation. And on the eve of their revolutionary success, they pointed out that they were a part of this exploited third world. And when we think about Walter Rodney and him also utilizing this concept of this mass colonial world that we needed to have solidarity with, Bishop is pointing out the fact that the challenge for states like Grenada throughout the Caribbean and throughout this sort of former colonial third world is to create a new international order that puts uh, the economy in service of the people and not the other way around. And so it was definitely a more hopeful moment. And this is, uh, as this revolution has happened, and this is just supposed to, um, as this revolutionary movement is happening, this is just supposed to what is happening in the rest of the Caribbean at the time, which is this uh, burgeoning, I would say this burgeoning wave of structural adjustment policies and this also burgeoning wave of um, a resurgence of Western security forces within states to quell movements. And so we see it in Jamaica, they're trying to oust leftist presidencies there. One year after the Grenada revolution happens, Walter Rodney is assassinated and Guyana goes through this crisis of not just legitimacy because of his assassination, but also because um, of an economic crisis that was happening throughout the Caribbean. And the economic crisis in the Caribbean wasn't artificial crisis that was you know, spurred by external interest. And so even though I could say that they were in crisis, some of the other you know, countries in the world were not. And so what the PRG did was that they came into power and they addressed the fact that the only thing that they have to aspire to is to be these you know, exploited countries. And in talking about uh, structural adjustment policies, my parents grew up at the height of structural adjustments uh, in Guyana. And so it was hard for people to afford food. A lot of the times they just couldn't get food. Um, people were working, but they weren't necessarily being paid. And they were being told that they had to accept all of these austerity measures and the greater good of some grand scheme of economic growth and development in the future to come. 
that they already know wouldn't be felt by them. I think one of the reasons that I focus on Canada, not just uh, when I talk about banking services, but also structural adjustment in both uh, Guyana and then in Grenada after the revolution uh, dissolves due to Marty's Bishop's assassination and murder, as well as the mass imprisonment of communists and socialists in Grenada after the US invades, is the fact that Canada was actually heading a lot of these structural adjustment programs and packages that were imposed on Caribbean states. And even to this day, if we just look at the macro sort of macro level structural dimensions of economic hegemony and imperialism, especially in the Caribbean region, will always highlight the US and UK, which have massive tax haven and offshore interests in the region. But when you look at more so institutional and security developments in the region, what you see is that Canada more often than not is heading a lot of these bodies. And so it was Canadians that headed structural adjustment packages and programs that would be pushed on Guyana, just as it was Canada, Canada that would head these same programs after the US is done with its invasion in Grenada. And just as today, when you look at Canada and the IMF, Canada is still the representative or speaks for over 10 Caribbean countries. And so I point that out to say that um, my focus on Canada is not accidental, but Canada actually plays an outsized role in making sure that Caribbean states are pushed back into and reintegrated into the neoliberal economic order. And so even when the Grenadian revolution happened, you had it where NJM members, they did recognize that Canadian banks, their subsidiaries and their affiliates also played an outsized role within the Grenadian economy as well. And so I think that that's something important to recognize because it is not just the case that um, Caribbean states like Grenada or Guyana were being exploited by external and foreign interests within productive sectors, but even in sectors like finance and banking, they also saw this outsized external um, influence. And so one of the first things that uh, the New Jewel movement did once they gained power and they created the People's Revolutionary Guard or People's Revolutionary Government was to unionize these Canadian banks that were racist, didn't give to Grenadians, only facilitated more foreign capture of the entire economy. And as soon as they decided that bank employees would be unionized, you saw the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce leave uh, Grenada. You also saw the Royal Bank of Canada uh, pull out of Grenada. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, the only Canadian bank that stayed was Scotiabank because they thought that they would be able to compete with the new state banks that Grenada would try to develop. Uh, and this was because the PRG did not say that, oh, we don't want competition but they actually didn't mind having that Canadian bank there because they wanted the state banks to be competitive. They weren't misguided to believe that everything pushed by the state would be the law of the land, but they wanted state banks to have competition so that they could be long lasting um, in the future so that they just wouldn't be entities propped by the state. And if something were to happen, they would fail, right? And so um, even during the G Grenadian revolution, you had it where the PRG were quote unquote pragmatic. So they took the aspects of the capitalist system that they could use for their advantage to quickly develop their people while also keeping uh, some of those aspects so that foreign investors would not flee from their economy and leave their economy completely uh, decimated. 
And this is because a lot of what they were producing, like a lot of the commodities and like almonds and sort of these sort of nut products, they knew couldn't uh, push them into, you know, super international relevancy, especially earlier on in the revolution. And so their strategy, uh, once they gained power, was actually gradual public ownership as they worked with the private, uh, different sort of private partnerships within Grenada. And it's because they wanted to have the Grenadian economy be competitive while sticking to the revolutionary path. And in order to do this, what they did was they prioritized uh, transitioning sectors that were heavily dominated by foreign capitalists and benefited foreign capitalists into more sort of public avenues so that they could be reoriented for Grenadians. Um, however, they didn't push these sort of full-scale nationalizations that we saw happen in some uh, anglo sphere Caribbean states like Guyana early on, precisely because they didn't want sort of that mass fleeing from its economy. And it's because they actually, after their revolution, were willing to walk that fine line between uh, global financial capitalists and also developing its economy locally, that um, the PRG was economically growing. And even though it had its socialist and revolutionary uh, orientation, the IMF and World Bank couldn't deny that it was working for them and that it was actually developing on pace, especially since they started paying back debts Grenada incurred by its former non-revolutionary government but what you saw even then was that the US didn't want the IMF or World Bank to give any money uh, to Grenada, even though Grenada was you know, a success during its revolutionary government. And that was precisely because they didn't want people to think that socialism or revolutionary governments could be successful. And so um, even though the US tried to block that off, their economy was still successful given that they had, um, Given that they had, and I don't want to say that they had, you know, smart economists within uh, the revolutionary governance structure, but they had people who understood how capitalism itself functioned, and those people were able to reorient uh, their understandings of that capitalism to be one that provided for the people, if that makes sense. And of course, we know that the revolution, there was infighting within that core group of uh, people that were governing, so that when Bishop and a few others become assassinated, the Reagan administration took that as a perfect time to swoop in and intervene in Grenada. Um, and once that happens, uh, uns unsurprisingly, um, Unsurprisingly, capitalists and imperialists, they take sort of, they take the opportunities provided with uh, disorder um, and disunity, and they use it to their advantage. One of the reasons why uh, the US response to the assassination of Bishop was so immense was because they knew that not only did they need to go in there and suppress, um, these sort of revolutionary leaders that were still alive in Grenada, but they also needed to utilize an aggressive propaganda campaign to not only justify their uh, invasion, 
but to also say that um, these were problems inherent in socialism where strong men are created, jealousy arises and these people get disposed. And I think that that's a less appreciated part of US invasion because when the US invaded, uh, even though Grenadians were upset that Maurice Bishop was assassinated and some of them, and they were upset with like the party leaders who colluded to assassinate uh, Maurice Bishop and others, Grenadians at that time, they were heavily educated under the PRG government. They knew the history, they understood, and they were you know, beneficiaries of sort of this socialist transformation of their society that when the US invaded, the US had to do an aggressive campaign to misinform the population. So when the US first invaded in Grenada, their strategy was to paint Maurice Bishop as a boogeyman. And they realized less than 24 hours that that wasn't going to fly with the majority of the population. And so what they did instead was they were able to attack Cuba and these other sort of you know ultra leftists uh, who they called the communists and oh Maurice Bishop was just a social democrat and he was just you know a minor socialist, um, and so that heavy propaganda campaign was able to uh, discredit sort of communist forms of building one society and also socialist forms because now you're whitewashing you know what was Maurice Bishop's history, and so the U.S. massive propaganda campaign. Uh, towards Grenadians had to happen in order for Grenadians to then later accept sort of these structural adjustment policies. A lot of people focus on the invasion and not its aftermath, but central to the propaganda campaign was Canada, who also came in to help facilitate the structural adjustment. And it wasn't even a structural adjustment because then remember the Grenadian economy was already doing well. It was literally to facilitate an adjustment that an economic reorientation of Grenada's economy that would push it back into being foreign dominated, foreign owned and foreign control and siphoning away revolutionary progress that was oriented towards the people and towards justice back to these sort of foreign elites that felt uh, slighted by revolutionary Grenada. And so I think that all of those things are important to remember and consider. Well, thank you so much. And and kind of, I'd like to pick up on, on one thing that you mentioned that I think is really worth highlighting. And, and I was particularly kind of intrigued by, which is like focusing on Canada instead as a as this imperialist country in, in the Caribbean, uh, because I think there's kind of a, a diluted conception of, of some people in the US and in the West who claim to be socialist or leftist in whatever capacity who kind of revere Canada for some reason and, and talk a lot about, you know, how great the Canadian healthcare system is, blah, blah, blah. Um, and this kind of contributes to this overall left that is very okay with, with uh, social democratic imperialism. Um, and I think this is a great example with, with Canada's um, activities in, in the Caribbean of, it, of its role in these structural adjustments. And I think also that it's very different as, as you were talking about um, because people really like to focus on kind of the action and the, the flashy uh, intervention. Um, and, you know, when militaries go and get involved in, in, in the Caribbean, particularly the US military, and they kind of ignore the much longer lasting and much more devastating 
um, economic policies that are kind of more abstract and don't seem to really make a lot of um, immediate impact or tangible impact compared to military intervention. So I'm curious about that, which is, I guess, leading into what, what I think is important to highlight, and you, you mentioned it a little bit as well, which is just like to kind of try and comprehend life under structural adjustment and life under IMF rule um, that is, you know, comparable, of course, to like a living under military rule because it is like a living under kind of a certain financial regime. But I don't think people really understand the extent to which like living under the IMF and living under structural adjustment being imposed is, is one of the greatest killers imaginable. And you mentioned, you know, the price of food being unaffordable for the average person. Then you have, you know, when the IMF comes in anywhere all over the world, um, wages being decreased, price of medicine going up. And then the slightly more intangible, even beyond that of the state itself and any role of the state in the healthcare system and um, in trade uh, is completely liberalized and done away with. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that, which is, I guess, focusing on, on both of those things together, which is like, why does the left broadly in the United States or in the West in general really have a hard time grasping this social democratic imperialism um, of the Canadian variety, but also just in general, how social democracies participate. And in particular, I think you mentioned, you know, settler colonial social democracy, which is in Canada, for example. Um, participating in this extraction from the global south and, and the Caribbean in this example. And also just to emphasize exactly, you know, what they're doing and people are not fully grasping what structural adjustment of this variety does in destroying the state structure in preventing anybody from having um, a, a global south state that can protect people from, from intervention, but also from, you know, uh, the destruction of the healthcare system from trade being liberalized. So yeah, I'm curious to pick up on, on kind of why you focused on Canada and, and how it is a really good insight into this new like method of analysis that people should pick up on, which you know, social democratic imperialism, um, as well as the, the real devastation that the structural adjustment causes. So, Something that I also talk a little bit about in my work is how even the Canadian left, for instance, was unprepared uh, to discuss Canada's involvement in the global South in general, Latin America, the Caribbean, and Africa. And this was precisely because they had always saw Canada as a middle power or just as an accomplished state to the US. But I never took that understanding of Canada because precisely because my dissertation focused on the banks. Um, like if I focused on any other entity in Canada, like telecommunications or um, railroads and things like that, I may have gotten away with a different perspective. But because I focused on Canadian banks, I was actually able to see, no, these Canadian banks have their own sort of agency they get all of this help from the Canadian state and they're completely exploitative entities. So what do I mean by that? When I first started to do my dissertation, um, it's weird because it started off of a conversation I was having a, 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 with my, one of my friends from Trinidad and they were like, oh, if there was a Silicon Valley in the Caribbean, where would it be? 
And I made like a funny retort back to them saying, how are we going to have a Silicon Valley when no one here is an entrepreneur? Like everyone says that they want to be an entrepreneur, but we don't have any entrepreneurs, right? And it was just like a funny sort of one-off conversation that we had. But for some reason, we had brought it up to her dad. Like, I think we had went out and we were just eating and her dad was there and we brought up that we were joking and her dad is an entrepreneur. And he said, well, one of the reasons that you don't have entrepreneurs here is because the banks don't give people here money. And when he had said that, I thought that it was weird, but it stuck with me in my mind. Like, you know, when someone says something and you don't forget it, but you don't know why. And then I was with one of my friends in Barbados. And when I was in Barbados, uh, we had went to like this, the uptown part, which is like the rich section of Barbados. You have a lot of white uh, people who settle down and live there. And all of the banks there are nice and flashy. And for some reason, I was just looking at the banks and I was remembering him saying like, oh, the banks don't lend to people. And it dawned on me, I looked at my friend and I said, why are all of these banks here Canadian? Like I would have expected them to be from the UK given that the UK had colonized Barbados, but they were all uh, Canadian. And then when I was in Jamaica, I noticed the same thing, RBC, Royal Bank of Canada. Um, Bank of Nova Scotia, AKA Scotia Bank. We also have First Caribbean, which is really just Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce rebranded. And so then I was, you know, it sparked my curiosity. So I asked, started asking people, I was like, why are all of these banks here Canadian? And people were like, I never thought about that, but that's true. All of our banks are Canadian. And so it was actually from a conversation that then led to someone saying something that then all of this got put together for me. And so what I did was I wanted to, in my dissertation project, I wanted to focus on Canada. And at first I thought it was going to be a purely historical project because I wanted to trace the history of how Canadian banks came to the Caribbean. But when I started off doing it as a historical process, it was like, no, uh, Canadian banks were able to dominate Caribbean markets ever since the times of British imperialism, especially after the American Revolution. But not only that, but they continue to be the dominant uh, financial institutions in the region, dominating how resources get allocated in general. And so then I was like, wait a minute, this is a completely different project because now I'm talking about actual imperialism. And what made matters worse was that because Canadian banks were so successful in the Caribbean, when Canada was actually given uh, independence from the British in um, 1867, the first political leaders of Canada were all merchants in charge of these big banks that were in, operating in the Caribbean. And because they were the first politicians, they legislated laws and created policies that would always make Canadian banks Canadian. So when you talk about foreign ownership in Canada, for instance, in these other industries, that doesn't apply to Canadian banks that have built themselves up to be concentrated entities owned and operated by Canadians, receiving the aid and assistance from the Canadian state to sort of build themselves up in Latin America and also in the Caribbean region. And so that became something super important for my dissertation, especially when I started talking about the IMF, World Bank policy and structural adjustment policies in the Caribbean, because given that banking history and Canadian bankers being dominant in the Caribbean, a lot of IMF and World Bank justification for the reason why Canada heads all of these structural adjustment programs and packages in the Caribbean 
is given their long history of expertise in the region. But of course, their long history of expertise are as financiers. And then when we talk about structural adjustment and the left, you have this misguided notion. And I also say that it exists when we talk about sanctions as well, that structural adjustment or sanctions are purely economic uh, policies, programs, or actions that have no bearing on the politics or uh, social relationships in a society. And we know that that's just not true. Structural adjustment is not just a way to economically you know, reorient your economy, but it's a political and economic intervention. And what I was able to trace was that Canadian bankers were now making political and financial decisions for Caribbean states. So in 1955, you had Grant Towers, who was an executive at the Royal Bank of Canada. He was also the IMF head expert to create structural adjustment packages for countries like Jamaica, Guyana, et cetera. And in his recommendations, he included that these states should not create central banks, that these states should have interest rates at this level for foreign entities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those are highly political acts because now you're ruling on who the state is and isn't allowed to collect money from. And therefore, you're actually constraining where state spending goes. And that's going to have social impacts and social consequences. Uh, and that report, and later on, Jamaica did develop its own bank, but that report is sort of why you have it where a lot of countries in the Caribbean use more of their state expenditure towards uh, paying off IMF interest rates versus investments in health and education, right? And so I think that when people think about structural adjustment or sanctions, they don't put the connections between uh, how this impacts policy uh, because we've been told throughout our Western education systems that the market is the market and the market is this standalone entity with no bearing on politics. And of course, that's just an ahistorical assertion because the market arises with capitalism and now people need to have an international uh, way to assert which values are what, where, when, how, and why. And so for me, the reason that that gets downplayed is sort of like how we're able to section off, uh, you know, individualistic ideologies from each other. So we say the market is here, politics is here, so that we could say that, oh, the reason why the economy failed is due to bad political choices without understanding that no, those two are always working together. And if someone is making a political choice and they're not having a say on the market, so they're not looking at what impacts that will have on the market or on the politics itself, then that is doing a disservice to governance in general. And so uh, me focusing on Canada was to capture sort of these smaller types of dominations that do exist that people miss especially again, when they're only looking at sort of macro level structural economic hegemony that overemphasize the US and UK. Um, I think something else that uh, people miss, is, especially with talks about China now, and this is what's frustrating to me again as someone that studies banking and finance, is the fact that global wealth is still predominantly centered. Global wealth and global finance is still predominantly centered with the US and UK. So we live in an international order or in a global world where the dominant financiers, the majority of the global wealth are still going to the US and UK. 
And of course, this is because when Bretton Woods institutions were being created, those were the two entities that had the overwhelming say in how they would be created. But also, you have this hierarchical US-UK political economic domination in terms of finance and global wealth, but also their ally states, including anglo settler states like Canada, are also there as well. And if we understand that, Canada is doing a lot well internationally, uh, a lot better than a state like China is. But that gets missed when all we're talking about is economic growth. And if we read scholars like Walter Rodney, for instance, we know that economic growth doesn't tell you anything, right? It doesn't even tell you anything about development within a society. So why is it that we've come to use these bourgeois standards of measurements to inform us as you know, even people who are allegedly leftists of how the world is working and not looking at the actual processes of accumulation and where that, those accumulations are located. And then if you take it from that lens or if you look at it from the finance lens and you're seeing the big picture, for you, China's on the outskirt with the majority of its global wealth and global financial dealings being centered between China and Hong Kong. It's not fully integrated into this, you know, US, UK dominated, you know, financial and global wealth access of which Canada is fundamentally a part of. And also we're talking about, or am I, you know, what I'm currently working on in my paper on increased global militarization is how in my dissertation a few years ago, I'm writing about how Canada is developing uh, military bases in the global South, right? And then you had an expose that came out and confirmed it in a lot more places than I thought, because I was only focused on the Caribbean. So I saw that they were making one in Jamaica. But Canada has regional security systems in the Caribbean. Uh, they have regional security systems in Africa and in Europe. That is how Canadian troops were able to assist the French in sort of the Mali coup that they didn't like. Uh, that's also how Canadian troops were able to be the first to be in Haiti um, after the coup that happened in 2004, where it was the Canadian soldiers that you know pushed down the protesters and captured the airport and brought in US troops afterwards. So a lot of people missed that because they are only focused on, or they only utilize economic measurements that are pushed by these Western states with this particular interest, and they completely ignore states like Canada and Australia. And so something that's interesting to me, for instance, is in the 1980s and 90s, you had people saying, oh, Canada didn't want to be involved in Latin America and the Caribbean in regards to security, since they didn't want to pick a side in the Cold War. But that, like that's false. Canada picked a side in the Cold War when the Stephen Harper government during his tour of Latin America came out and you know made this speech saying, oh, for those countries, and again, he was addressing pink tide governments in Latin America and you know socialist uh, thinking in the Caribbean. But it was the Canadian president who pointed out that uh, within these regions, you had people who had a syndrome of economic nationalism, political authoritarianism, and class warfare. We all know that he's critiquing socialism and communism, but people would downplay that saying he didn't pick a side. But he picked a side when he uh, conflated class warfare with political authoritarianism and economic nationalism, right? Um, he picked the side against those who were pointing out that 
we are economically being exploited and that class is a defining factor, not just in our societies, but in the international system as a whole, which is why we want sort of a new international economic order. And so for my work, I would say that I really try to focus on these smaller entities that are more so downplayed, not because they are economically or militarily or financially small, but because they just don't receive as much scrutiny or attention as they should. Uh, when we think about mining in Africa or in Latin America, the Caribbean, for instance, when we think about banking, et cetera, we are told that we should have outdo scrutiny or over scrutiny of Chinese investment and Chinese dealings. However, how can that be the case when Canada is more dominant than China in all of both of those factors? How can that be the case when the US and UK and all of these former empires, including France, are still overwhelmingly dominant in all of these sectors? And so I really just think that it's accepting, again, bourgeois standards for how we apply and address things and not a lot of people doing sort of that historical in-depth work that scholars like Walter Rodney did to tease out these other relationships that exist. Because also in how Europe underdeveloped Africa, Walter Rodney has really good sections on Italy and, Italian, and the Italian role in Africa, right? And again, that gets missed for sort of these bigger entities like UK, US, Germany, France. And so I think that these, mi these minor countries, you know, like the Italy's, like the Australia's, like the Canada's also need to be heavily scrutinized and critiqued. Well, yeah, thank you. And, and I completely agree. And uh, I think also what you pointed out with them being part of this Anglosphere with Australia as another example, kind of attests to the way in which the global North as a political and economic you know, uh, concept is, is becoming a reality, really already is a reality uh, with Canada being so integrated into, uh, you know, economic imperialism driven by Europe and the United States. It just, and I think that people are kind of like, as you were pointing out, people are, are people go a little too easy on Canada and I don't really grasp why. I think they have this like kind of, uh, you know, happy kind of like nice association with Canadians and they don't really understand uh, how deeply involved they are in this project of the West as a settler colonial country. Um, I guess my last thing that I would want to ask about with respect to your research, but also get like, you know, just in general, um, and I, I, this is maybe a complicated question uh, that can't be answered very quickly, but I saw that you had written an article as well about the 2020 elections in Guyana. And I kind of wanted to relate this to the subject we've been discussing broadly, which is, the the capture the imperial capture of, of these states in the Caribbean um, and in Latin America and and as well I think one of the things you focused on in that was how important uh, Guyana became in the eyes of the West with respect to Venezuela like it was you know the election was pretty much in the eyes of the West it was about Venezuela which is which is kind of incredible and I think it speaks to the fact that as we were discussing earlier with 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 Grenada as an example, that opportunities for, you know, exiting out of this financial regime of Western imperialism are taken as threats to the very existence of, of the West and they're, they're treated with, with severe reaction. Cuba, of course, is the most famous example. 
Grenada as well, Venezuela more recently. And so I was fascinated in how these elections in 2020, the, the dispute of the elections became kind of a reflection about, about Venezuela and, and how the future of, of Guyana was pretty much going to be dependent on you know, who the U.S. decided would be a better ally in like destroying Venezuela or being a neocolonial ally against Venezuela. And I think that speaks to a level of, of neocolonial capture that, that is kind of difficult to grasp when your politics are pretty much being decided by complete, you know, a country miles and miles away. Um, and I know that, that that's kind of complicated considering the history of, of politics in, in Guyana itself, but I think maybe we can sort of end briefly on this note, which is to say like the modern implications of, of what we've been talking about, about the potential opportunities for breaking away from this system that Walter Rodney represented, that the New Jewel movement represents, and how in Guyana today, I think you had that that contest in 2020. And, and from what I was reading, the perspectives you were discussing were really people reflecting on what a change in government would mean with respect to a, a party coming into power that could potentially bring them back to a you know really like a level of of capture neocolonial capture um, that they wouldn't be okay with and and also again with Venezuela like people on the ground not even really thinking about in the U.S. perception not really caring like which party is in power so long as it is their their ally against you know whoever is trying to break away so I guess that would be my last question to briefly reflect on is like how how with this neocolonialism um does the u.s basically use countries like guyana uh and basically you know control their politics obviously but really use them as bases against whatever country is rebelling um use them in this neocolonial way to like prop them up against venezuela for example and and how do you see i guess like long-term resistance to that in Guyana today of people pushing back against that that kind of neo-colonial puppet status? So I think that Guyana, like other states in the Caribbean um, and just other states in general are unique yet not unique. So typically when people are talking about colonialism and re-intervention into independent states and societies, they're usually talking about historical progresses that, or processes that their grandparents would have been immune to. That, as I said, like it's my mom's generation, for instance, that we're seeing UK, you know, coming back into Guyana, sending soldiers and declaring that Guyana has no government now. And so that sort of outright intervention is still fresh in many Guyanese people's minds. And so obviously you would have you have a Guyana that is not supportive of any sort of outwardly Western interventions into their societies like that. And I think that that's important before talking about the article, because when I wrote that article, I was really writing it from a place of urgency with the knowledge that uh, Western states use these opportunistic moments to intervene in ways that we wouldn't want. And so something that Walter Rodney did with the Working People's Alliance in Guyana, just as what Chetty Jagan did when he declared that Guyana would be socialist prior to the UK coming in and you know declaring Guyana you know not independent again, um, is that 
one, multiracial organizing is now a rhetoric that all political parties in Guyana must use. Two, socialism and communism is, are not dirty words in Guyana. And in fact, I think that that's, that's also important because you have a lot of Western media writing about, oh, what if Guyana becomes socialist like Venezuela or communist like Venezuela? And people in Guyana reading that are laughing because in the US minds, that's supposed to conjure up negative feelings amongst the people reading that. But in our society, those aren't dirty words because those got us our independence. And so I think that that's um, important to remember because one, my urgency in writing that article was to just point out that the incumbent government who didn't want to see power just needed to see power so there wouldn't be an intervention. But I was also pointing out that no, it would be political suicide in Guyana for any party to actually welcome in the US. Like the political parties will be opportunistic and say, yes, the US should sanction those leaders in that party who don't want to cede power. But if the US decided to come into Guyana or if the US decides as they did, hey, Guyana should broadcast these messages into Venezuela, no political party in Guyana would do that because that would be political suicide for that party. When we look at the makeup of our two dominant political parties in Guyana, uh, so the one who didn't want to cede power but ended up ceding power, otherwise known as like the PNC and the APNU, they're a multiracial alliance. And of course, if we just look at the PNC alone, that was the party of Burnham, which did assassinate Walter Rodney, and they had to go through that sort of multiracial rebranding by joining with the APNU, which was a mixed party of uh, Indian and black people. And when they decided to do that mixture, what they were saying is we want to distance ourselves from our history of assassinating Walter Rodney, but we recognize the importance of multiracial organizing. And we also recognize the importance of class politics. And so that's what they took with them. On the other hand, the party that was trying to reclaim power and who are now in power today, the PPP, they're the party of socialist uh, Chetty Jagan. And so given party histories itself, the party histories themselves, it's at once ironic because the, it's like the party histories won't allow for either party to consent to US capture without it being political suicide precisely because of the socialist histories, precisely because of their histories on focusing on class politics, and precisely because of their histories, more so back then on multiracial organizing, whereas today a lot of people would say it's just rhetorically um, focused on multiracial organizing. And so given those histories, it was never my thought that either of those parties would be welcoming to US intervention. It was my thought that the US would take the political crisis in Guyana to intervene anyway, to say if these parties can't get it under control, the US would have no uh, reason but to intervene. And it would also be quite easy for them to intervene because at that time, Guyana had recently struck oil. Um, the oil was found by ExxonMobil and other Western foreign oil companies. And not only that, but it would be very easy for them to heighten up tensions between Guyana or Guyanese people and Venezuelans, precisely because after the founding of oil, Venezuela has ramped up its claims to over two thirds of the territory that comprises Guyana, right? And so all of these factors in my mind were situated in such a way that if the West did intervene, 
they could mobilize people uh, to be confronted in a war sort of situation between those two states that none of the citizens in those places would want, but would serve US means of regime change in Venezuela. Um, so thankfully, the AP and UAFC Alliance coalition government, they did decide to see power and the PPP was able to claim the mantle. Um, but I think that part of them ceding power uh, came because they understood that the West would use this opportunistically. I think that in fact, they actually decided to cede power a day after the US uh, wanted to start broadcasting into Venezuela. And I think that this is important to note because the US first sanctioned party members and they didn't care about that. But as soon as the US involved Venezuela into it and you had Mike Pompeo saying that he was going to visit Guyana when no US uh, high, high, you know, or big time leader had ever visited Guyana in decades. I think that that signaled to the party, wait a minute, we're going to create a disaster situation that we don't want, Guyanese won't want, and that would be political suicide. And so they ceded power. Um, you had some people who took that as a uh, as solidarity between Venezuela and Guyana, but I don't think it was more so solidarity. I think it was more so them understanding that they would be committing political suicide um, over anything else. I do wish that ties between Venezuela and Guyana could be stronger, especially since in Guyana, we do have a lot of Venezuelan refugees and stuff like that. But I think that the nationalist claims on the border sort of hinder those ties. But luckily for you know, people like me, and luckily for the history of the region, Guyana's uh, political parties, given their histories and socialism and communism and multiracial organizing, have sort of hindered opportunistic uh, capabilities of those parties in the present to do things like that. I think it would be a much different story, for instance, if, um, the PPP or the PNC didn't have those histories of socialism, communism, and multiracial organizing and confronting US and UK imperialisms. Uh, if they didn't have those histories as the dominant political parties in Guyana, it would be a much different story. So it was actually a really close call, to be honest. Definitely. And I, I think that still, I think it's been two years, and I guess like it, it's still worth kind of following. Uh, the situation to see what will happen afterwards but yeah it, it's incredible what you pointed out which is to say like when a when a u.s secretary of state says he's coming to your country and hasn't been there for a long time like you never know something something is coming um but yeah thank you so much and uh and thank you again for for answering these questions and and giving a really i think a, a good understanding of just like how imperialism is operating today uh, in the Caribbean and Guyana, and hopefully elucidating a little bit of like, you know, people should not be believing so much in in uh, the social democratic structures and in, in kind of stellar colonial countries. I think that's a big takeaway. I guess my very last thing would be like a book recommendation or, or anything you want to shout out um, that's worth people reading further on the subject. And yeah. So of course, I recommend people read Walter Rodney's The History of the Guyanese Working People. Um, there's also this one other book that I would recommend people uh, read. 
Um, but for some reason, I, I know it's by David. Um, sorry, let me try and see. Ah, so if they want to learn more about uh, Canada and Canadian history in regards to Canada's role and also just like the US trying to hinder black internationalisms, trying to push down black power movements throughout the Caribbean of which Canada really trained and provide arms for a lot of the police there to shut down those movements. Uh, you should read a book by Austin David called Fear of a Black Nation, Race, Sex and Security in 60s Montreal. It's a really good book. It also has really good images of people like Rodney um, and Carmichael um, or Ture and all of those people in it. So I highly recommend it. Well, thank you so much again. And, and thank you, Dr. John. I really appreciated uh, speaking to you and, and learning more and reflecting on your research. And uh, thanks so much and have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye.